Good morning, church. What a, uh, what a wonderful song and so appropriate, always appropriate, um, leaning on the everlasting arms. It's good to worship the Lord together. Uh, welcome to everyone who's uh, joining us this morning. Um, we're glad that you're here. I know it's a little cold. I was talking to a dear brother this morning, and he told me a, a joke, and I thought, no, that's, that's so appropriate. I don't think it's ever been more appropriate to, to talk about us as the frozen chosen today. <laughs> but um, I'd like to, uh, I'm grateful to uh, Pastor Reggie, who's uh, invited me to preach today. It's a, it's a tremendous honor to bring to you God's word. Um, uh, do remind, remember to keep Pastor Reggie and his family in prayer. They're, they're taking a little break today, a much-deserved break. Um, but if you could turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2, the title of my message this morning is Not I, But Christ. We're going to be reading from the second chapter of Galatians, from verses 19 to 21. I'll be reading from the ESV, and I'd ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, this is the word of the Lord. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks that um, Lord, you teach us that it is really about leaning on the everlasting arms. As we sung, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, the beautiful privilege to pray, Lord, together right now, Lord, and the beautiful privilege that you give us to sing all together as a congregation, to hear each other's voices uh, being lifted up to you. We pray now that you would uh, bless the preaching of this word, Lord. Help me to preach, Lord. I, I need you. And Lord, if I just speak, it's just words. But Lord, you can give life to your word. And we ask that you do that uh, this morning in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been said that the book of Galatians is one of Paul's most exciting uh, letters it's uh, full of rebuke, it's full of confrontation, and sometimes pretty startling language. Words like stern and assaulting have been used to describe its contents. And yet, part of its glory is that although, yes, at times it's a severe letter, it can bring joy and freedom to those who have the ears to hear to hear its central message. Central to its message is a clarity on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not, on how it is that sinful man can be reconciled 
to a holy God. Paul's letter to the Galatians has had a great impact on people throughout history. Um, and while we don't know how it was received by the original recipients, uh, we do know that the Holy Spirit has used it generation after generation since it was written about 49 AD. Galatians played a major role in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And to this day, it continues to teach the church to be on guard for distortions of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And now before we get into our passage this morning, uh, allow me to provide a little bit of background and context of this letter. And it's a letter, of course, that we're studying on, on Friday nights as well. In Paul's time, Galatia was a, a Roman political province in Asia Minor, in what today would be modern Turkey. And in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul traveled to Galatia uh, with his companion Barnabas and planted several churches in the southern cities, including Antioch in Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. You may recognize those names from the book of Acts. And they were churches that were made up of Gentile Christians. And after he planted these churches uh, and he left to continue his missionary work, something happened. False teachers had come in and were confusing these Gentile young Christians. They were distorting the gospel. And they were teaching a false one, which Paul called no gospel at all. They were undermining the apostleship of Paul, who was directly commissioned by Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And after, uh, you know, these agitators uh, or Judaizers, uh, we don't know exactly their identity, but uh, they were teaching that something was missing from Paul's gospel. They were telling the Gentile Christians that in order to be truly saved, in order to be truly counted as God's children, they needed to follow the Mosaic law. It went something like this. Look, Paul is a, a second-rate apostle. Uh, he got his gospel probably from the other apostles in Judea, but he, he's missing some key details. His gospel is incomplete. If you want to be fully accepted, if you really want to be saved, you need to follow the Mosaic law. You need to observe these special days. And you definitely need circumcision. In other words, you've got to live like a Jew. Now, unfortunately, these false teachers were beginning to persuade the Galatians. And this is why Paul wrote such a passionate letter. He wrote to correct and rebuke the Galatians, for having turned so quickly to a false gospel, because to turn from the gospel that he preached to them, he said, is actually to turn from Christ. He wrote to them that they needed to resist the message of these false teachers, and they needed to return to the way of faith, and they needed to stand firm. He wrote to them because he loved them, 
and he was also in very much anguish over them. And so in the first two chapters, uh, he defends his apostleship and his gospel. In Galatians 1.1, for example, he opens his letter with this. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. In other words, I write with the full weight of my apostleship, which is directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he tells them that there are people who are troubling you and are seeking to distort the gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, I'm shocked that you're falling for it. You're deserting Christ. If you go that way, that leads to destruction. Because guess what? There is no other gospel. And then he bluntly says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That is some pretty bold language. In other words, even if we or an angel, even if we later on or an angel come preaching a different gospel, tell them to go to hell. Let him be accursed. Let the full judgment of God fall upon them. How is it that Paul can be so confident and speak this way? He tells them in verse 11, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't get it from man, nor was I taught it from man. I got it directly through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Anything contrary to this is bunk. You're deserting Christ if you go this way. And Paul gives them his own testimony of how he was called by God directly. He reminds them of how he used to be. He says, look, you know, in my former life, you know, my former life in Judaism, I was a rising star. I was exceeding other people of my age. And I was so zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But something happened to me. God called me, changed me, sent me. And Luke records this divine encounter with Christ in the book of Acts. As Paul was traveling one day um, to Damascus, he experienced a revelation that literally knocked him to the ground. It was the blinding splendor and glorious audible voice of the risen Christ. In Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him, Among the Gentiles, 
I did not immediately consult with anyone. Notice that Paul says it's the, he exalts the sovereign grace of God in saving him. He says, I, I was set apart before I was born. I was called effectually by his grace. The father was pleased to reveal his son to me. And he revealed him to me savingly. In other words, when it came to his salvation, Paul had nothing to boast about in himself. He gives all the glory to God and to God alone. And it, just, it wasn't just Paul who was glorifying God. In verses 22 to 24, Paul writes this, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Hallelujah. God uh, took Paul from being a persecutor of the faith to a preacher of the faith. He went from plundering churches to planting churches. And when it came to the gospel, Paul went from the savage disruptor to the staunchest defender. And what was so central about Paul's gospel message? Jesus Christ alone. His cross and resurrection. Now that Christ alone is the object of our faith for salvation. That salvation is found in no other name but Christ. That God justifies the ungodly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That he does this apart from works of the law. And because we are united to Christ, we can live to please him. We, we can obey sacrificially. And not to earn our adoption, but because of it. And to add anything else besides Christ as the basis of our justification is to pervert the gospel. In other words, to seek salvation through works, through works of the law, is to say that Christ died for no reason. And Paul was willing to defend this gospel even if it meant publicly confronting another apostle. As we turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 11, we see that a sad moment of compromise took place and a, a confrontation was necessary to defend the gospel. Paul tells the Galatians in, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, he says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came 
he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Antioch was one of the southern cities in Galatia. And when, and P- when Peter came there, Paul had to confront him because he stood condemned. In other words, he was, he was guilty. And the thing that he was guilty of took place in a very public way, uh, which is why it required a, a public confrontation. It required a, a public response from Paul. Peter fell out of step with the gospel. Not that he began to teach uh, falsely about the gospel, but his attitude was not in line with the gospel at that moment. And here's why it matters. And Peter was eating and sitting together with Gentile Christians, having, having table fellowship with everyone. And then some self-righteous people show up known as the circumcision party. And Peter, in a very public moment of weakness, he gives in to fear. He trades the testimony of Christ for the preservation of his reputation with these people identified as the circumcision party. It isn't that Peter disagreed with Paul theologically. They, they all agreed on the gospel. But in that moment, Peter sought the approval of man over the approval of God. And how often are we guilty of that? Brothers and sisters, do we seek man's approval over God's? Tim Keller said, Fear of man means that your desire for their blessing amounts to worship. The sad result of this incident was that one by one, the rest of the Jews began to do the same thing. Can you imagine the sound of of chairs being pushed back. Or the sound of people just gradually withdrawing from the table. leaving their Gentile Christian brothers alone. You know, table fellowship was not just about Jews and Gentiles uh, eating together. It, it, It concerned important purity laws. Philip Long writes this, In the ancient world... To share the table with another person 
was making a social statement about yourself. Thank you. And about your guest. Remember how Jesus often ate with the unclean or the outcasts to the shock of the Pharisees. Now the default theory or the default thought of many of the Jews in those days was that the Gentiles were automatically considered sinners and impure or unclean because they touched and ate the unclean foods that Israel was supposed to avoid as prescribed by the Mosaic food laws in the book of Leviticus. The Pharisees didn't share meals with each other except for them, with other people except for themselves. They were like a private eating club. And that's why they were appalled to see when Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, in the early church, communal meals often included the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. When we think of the Lord's Supper today, we, we often think of, you know, the little cracker or, and a little, a, little, a little bit of juice and, you know, something that takes a few minutes. Uh, but it wasn't really like that. Picture it as if we were in the lodge all together, having a nice big meal. And after the meal, we, we stay at the table and then we partake of the Lord's Supper together as a body. That's kind of more of how it used to be. That's kind of more of how it was done. So imagine a portion of the early church refusing to share the table with another portion of believers during the celebration of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'd be equivalent of saying that the excluded group does not fully belong to Christ that they were somehow not part of God's family. And so the sadness for Paul increased when even his companion Barnabas was led astray into this hypocritical behavior. And it says in verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the, the moment when Paul calls out Peter's hypocrisy. He says, Peter, you don't even observe the food laws. You live like a Gentile. So how can you force the, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews by insisting that they have to observe the dietary food laws? That's legalism. Now, prior to this, in Acts chapter 10, you don't need to turn there, God had given Peter a vision. A vision of all kinds of animals and reptiles and, and birds of the air. And he told them, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter had replied, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Did you catch that? God is the one who declares something clean. The reptiles and the birds 
They didn't suddenly shed some dirt and, and stop being reptiles and birds. They were simply declared clean to eat. God is the one who declares what is clean. He's the one who justifies the ungodly. What he has declared clean is not to be called common or unclean anymore. I wonder if those words from that vision came back to Peter's mind as he, as he looked from the side of his eye at the Gentile brothers that he had just left alone at the table. Requiring someone to do works of the law to be accepted by God and the church is out of step with the gospel. In verse 15 and 16, Paul continues, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul is saying, look, even us Jews by birth, you know, we're not Gentile sinners. And even we know, we have access to the law. Even we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we believed in Christ, in order to be justified in Christ by faith. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. These words are more freeing than you think. We can't save ourselves. Our works cannot save us. Our efforts cannot save us. Our deeds cannot save us. Nothing that we perform can save us. It isn't even our faith that saves us. Rather, it's the object of our faith that saves us, who is Christ. Because even the saving faith is a gift from God. And it simply is the means by which we receive Christ, who alone saves sinners. Paul says, that's why we also have believed in Christ. Hallelujah. And we come now to our main text this morning. In verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul was raised as a Jew being subjected to the law. His aim in life was to obey it as a means of justification, as a means of being righteous. He set out to master the law and even oppressed others with it. He thought he could earn God's favor through keeping it. He was so zealous, and not just for the law, but for the traditions of his fathers. He thought he was alive, but in fact, he was spiritually dead. 
No matter how much religion he had, Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins like every other person who does not have Christ. Because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. He needs a supernatural birth. Apart from that, he's dead. Oh, but when the light of Christ came to Paul and he experienced a supernatural birth, he died to the law so that he might live to God. He died to the law, to all of the law, as a means of righteousness. God brought him to a place through the law where the more he looked at it, the more he realized, I can't meet its demands. He stared at it and saw, I can't find life or righteousness by it. In fact, it threatens curses and judgments. It judges me if I try to turn it into a ladder to heaven. The law became a great mirror by which I see nothing but my condemnation. Paul came to realize that the letter kills, but it's the spirit that gives life. Therefore, I renounce it as a means of my righteousness. I am free from its dominion. And this happened through the law. What does that mean? In the sovereignty of God, Paul was meant to walk through the law, to become a Pharisee of Pharisees, to be trained by the best rabbi, to even persecute the church, so that in the end, he would be brought to the end of himself, so that he would count it all, all of his reputation, all of his accolades, all of the approval of man as rubbish, as garbage. He traded all of it so that he could truly live to God. Tim Keller said this, at the very least, attempting to be saved by works will lead to profound anxiety and insecurity. Because you can never be sure that you're living up to your standards sufficiently, whatever they may be. Uh, this makes you oversensitive to criticism, envious and intimidated by others who outshine you. It makes you nervous and timid because you are unsure of where you stand or else swaggering and boastful because you're trying to convince yourself of where you stand. Either way, you live with a sense of curse and condemnation. Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. Friend, have you died to the law? Or are you still alive to it? Have you died to trying harder to earn your salvation? Have you died to searching for other saviors? Or do you worship at the altar of human approval? 
or at the altar of self-reliance and performance or at the altar of religion. We must die in order to live to God. But how do I die to the law, you might ask? Simple. Look to Christ. Put your eyes on him. Only he obeyed the law perfectly. Only he died on the cross to save sinners. Only his righteousness can save you. Put your trust wholly in him. Turn from your other saviors and trust the only crucified, resurrected, and ascended Savior, and you will be safe. Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Living to God starts now. It means living to be pleasing to him because he's our heavenly father. It means living to him to to bring him glory instead of ourselves. It means living for his approval as opposed to man's approval. It means living to obey him, not from a position of being under the law, but from a position of being under grace. It means trusting in his plan of redemption and not your own. In verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And the phrase with Christ speaks of a union. And our union with Christ begins with his crucifixion. And Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But what does it mean that we have been crucified with Christ? Well, in one sense, it's another way of saying that I died to the law. That was what happened to me, and this is how it happened. I died to the law, being crucified with Christ. In other words, the death of Christ made a radical change in my life. Christ paid what the law demanded of me. He secured my pardon and my acceptance with God. He became a curse so that I would not be cursed. A crucifixion took place in me as well. I died to a previous way of living by being united with Christ in his crucifixion. And since I'm united to him by faith, the law can make no more demands of me to be accepted by God. I've been crucified with Christ. I died to the law, to the world, and to sin. But Paul doesn't stop there with death. He goes on to speak of the resurrection life he now lives. He says, 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Something radical happened. A transformation has occurred. Timothy George put it this way, the I who has died to the law no longer lives. That doesn't mean that Paul lost his personality or that he was literally dead. It means that the old way of life ended and I entered a new way of living. It means that my own personal preferences and my own interests no longer direct or drive me. Now, the indwelling Christ empowers me and lives in and through me. It means Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit, dwells within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When God justifies us, we don't instantaneously receive glorified bodies. Paul still had to live the Christian life in his, in his body. That's what in the flesh means, his current body. And that's the same for us as well. We live the Christian life in our current bodies, and, and that's why we're still subject to sinning. But we live that life by faith until we're glorified. Although we're justified by faith, we also live by faith. Saving faith cannot be reduced to a one-time act, a decision, or an experience in the past. The Reformers put it this way, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. It's living and, and dynamic, and it touches every aspect of our lives. That means we live by faith in our homes, with our kids, in our workplace, in our jobs, in our schools. It means through our trials and suffering, when good things happen, when, when bad things happen, through sickness and disease, through family problems, relationship problems, financial problems. It means we live by faith as we, as we serve him and love others. Whatever we do, we live by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when we're his child, we want to please him because he's our father and he's worthy. What is the object of this faith? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, loved me, he says, and gave himself for me. He came from heaven to earth, took on flesh, was born of a virgin, lived in perfect submission to his Father, and demonstrated the greatest love imaginable. He laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, but not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be 
the propitiation for our sins. Why do I live this life by faith in the Son of God? Because He loved me and He gave Himself up for me. What other reason do I need? What other reason do we need to trust in Christ? Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. Look at the ascension. Is there any reason not to trust him? He's faithful. And he cannot lie. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God's grace is, is a main feature in the book of Galatians. And some would think that Paul removing the law as a means of salvation would somehow restrict or void or nullify God's grace. But actually quite the opposite is true. If justification were through the law, then Christ's death is meaningless. If we could save ourselves by our efforts, then Christ died for no reason. Music ministry, you can come on up. If we turn the law into a ladder to heaven, we'd be making a mockery of Christ. We would be rebuilding the wall that Christ tore down. We would be sewing up the curtain that was torn in two. We would be rebuilding the temple and bringing back animal sacrifices and the ceremonial law. We would be doing all of this without the future grace of a coming Messiah. We would be reversing the promise to Abraham and the promised seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. We would be doing all of this to ourselves and still have to face a holy God without his grace. How would we stand? We wouldn't. So what's the solution to this? I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you did the most unimaginable thing. We certainly wouldn't have thought of it. We thank you that your sacrifice is sufficient. 
We thank you that you remind us that we dare not add anything to it. We thank you, Lord, that you remind us that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are no other saviors, Lord, though we sometimes put other saviors in, in your place. And we ask that you forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we, we seek man's approval instead of your approval, Lord. We give in to the fear of man. We look for comfort as our God. We, we look for security as our God. We look for something else as our Savior instead of you. Well, Lord, forgive us for this. Cleanse us of this. And thank you for reminding us as Paul said, we, we, we died to the law. We died to our own self-salvation projects. We quit trusting in anything else. And we look to Christ alone. His cross. His resurrection. It's finished. You accomplished it. You did everything that we needed. And we thank you now for faith that you give us. We thank you for saving faith, Lord. We thank you for even when we're straying, you bring us back, Lord. You encourage us to stand, to persevere, to keep going. To not be disheartened by the things that we see to the left or to the right. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. Where would we be without the cross? We don't want to go back. We don't want to undo what you have done. God forbid. We love you, Lord, and we, we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.